Hey, Sassanax, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanax Files. This week, we are discussing Season 7, Episode 3, Death Be Not Proud. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanax Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sass Snack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7 and 8, as well as Blood of My Blood and Men and Kilts, along with anything that Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of Season 7, Episode 3, Death Be Not Proud. again and welcome back to another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week we are talking about the third episode of season seven. You know how I said that I don't normally like premiere episodes. They just feel slow to me. (laughs) That's this episode. This episode was originally supposed to be the season seven premiere when everything was scheduled to work perfectly and COVID wasn't a thing and Katrina Balfe wasn't pregnant, etc. And I really do feel like this episode felt like a premiere. Not to say that it didn't have some completely amazing stuff, because it did. There were some scenes that absolutely knocked my socks off. But overall, it just felt very slow, a lot of retrofitting and trying to make us care about things when we should have been made to care about them earlier in the series. So all that being said, it's probably not my favorite episode of season seven. I feel like especially on the heels of 702, which was just this phenomenal episode, it really kind of fell flat in a lot of places for me. So we're going to first start talking about the house fire because I feel like that is a major place to start. It had impact on everything we saw in this episode and everything that we see moving forward in this season. It's what propels Jamie and Claire off the ridge towards Scotland into the revolution, etc. And it's just a really big jumping off point for every story that we get moving forward. There were a lot of moving parts for this house fire. And when I look at what all went into making this work... It really is absolutely amazing. And it's one of those things that I know they're probably going to cover it in the behind the scenes material that we get on the Blu-ray. And I'm so excited because I love watching all of that behind the scenes stuff. Through multiple interviews and podcasts and behind the scenes stuff that's been released from stars, we can kind of put a decent picture together of what all went into this. And it's really a compilation of all your behind the scenes people, your stunt people, lighting, set design, directors, director of photography, producers, they are all critical to making this work as seamlessly as it did. I just find it absolutely heartbreaking. And I knew it was going to be the case Because you know the house fire is coming if you're a book reader or even really a show watcher because that's really the whole reason that Roger and Brie went back in the first place. So you know it's coming and they build this wonderful, beautiful house across Fraser's Ridge and 
than to see it all just burn down. Like you thought watching the print shop burn down in season three was bad. Like this is 10 times worse. I just thought it was completely amazing that they actually did burn down the house. So not in the sense that while they were shooting the scene, it was burning down. No, that's not accurate. But what they did do was they filmed all of the stuff with fake fire, like set up, and then they actually burnt down the house to get all the material I guess they needed. But then they had to rebuild the set for the burnt down house set with all of the material that burned down in the house to make it look real. And I just find that so fascinating, all the detail that goes into making this show work. It just is forever impressing me with their efforts and hats off to them, seriously. Just to kind of give you an example of the special effect, Sam and Kat did their own stunts in this episode. Well, one stunt in particular that I'm thinking of in the explosion scene where they're like getting ready to jump off the porch and the explosion throws them off the porch. They did that themselves. But what you don't really notice in that scene is like the lanterns on the breezeway are swinging back and forth. Just little things like that. That's all special effects. A lot of the flames that you see on the house, they did have gas lighting bars that they had underneath the windows and stuff that they removed in post. They kept the flames and how they interacted with the house structure and the windows to kind of get the right light play on those, but they removed the actual machinery, I guess, if that's what you want to call it, to make it look realistic and to give the actors something to kind of play off of. But then along with all of the real flames that were on set that day, you also have all the fake flames that are kind of placed in and around them to make the whole house look like it's engulfed in flames. And then you have the burnt down version of the house later on in this episode. And yeah, it's just, it's so devastating. It really is. I think a major theme for this episode is home. What do you consider home? Where do you belong? What is home to you? And we see it woven all throughout. So I'm going to kind of walk us through it as we go. But the first time that we really see this discussed in any sort of indeterminate manner is when Jamie and Clara are sitting on the porch of their house, just really at a loss. Jamie has the conversation with Claire where he asks her, when you're called to the aid of a dying man, why is it that you never say no, ever? Though you can, the case is hopeless. And she says, because I can't, because I cannot admit that there is anything to do but go on. And the way that they just look at each other, it's not so much something that's in the dialogue, but the looks that they are giving each other where they are holding each other up, they are each other's safe harbor, and they may have lost their home, but they still have each other. That is the key thing, I think, for Jamie and Claire moving forward in this episode. And Jamie even says as much in one of his letters to Bree, they give each other the strength to go on. It's like Jamie says, in 702, after Roger and Brie go back, he said, for your sake, I will continue, though for mine alone, I would not. I feel like that is very plainly etched on both of their faces here. They're strong people. They're going to pick themselves up and move forward because they have to. 
But if they didn't have each other there, that would be a completely different ball game. If Claire had gone back with Roger and Bree and Jamie had gone back to the ridge on his own and then the house had burnt down, I don't know that he would have been able to find the strength to pick himself back up on his own, you know? So that I feel like is when you're starting to understand that they are home for each other. They're where the other person belongs. So then we have the scene a little bit later in the episode. Like I said, these scenes are all sprinkled throughout where Claire hears Jamie praying and he says those heartbreaking words, Lord, let me be enough. And he just looks up and he's got this look of pure desperation on his face. He's so desperately worried that he's not enough for Claire on his own that she was basically sticking around with him because of the world, the home that he built for her. And again, they're each other's home. So that by the end of this episode, where Claire looks at him and says, Jamie, you will always be enough. It's that acknowledgement that I don't need anything else in this world but you. But then you also get Ian's conundrum this episode because Jamie tells Claire that, you know, before we set down any roots, before we start building our new house, I really think we need to go back to Scotland. I made Jenny a promise and I intend to keep it. I need to take young Ian home to her. And so now that Jamie has made his intent clear that he's planning on taking Ian back to Scotland, now Ian begins to contemplate, where is home for me? It's like Jamie says, Lord knows what they'll make of each other, Lolly Brock and Ian. And it's so true. Ian is so different from the man or the boy, should I say, that he was when he left Lollybrock and all the people there. And so now he's going back a man, but a man that has been married, lost a child. He lived with the Mohawk. He's seen violence and he's done things and he's lived his life. And he is not the same person that he was when he left. So that in and of itself, Ian's wondering, is there even going to be a place for me? back at Lollybrock. Is it even going to be home anymore? There's this great conversation about literary references where Brianna was telling Ian about, you know, you can't go home again. And I love that Claire in her own way is comforting Ian and Jamie. And she says, well, I prefer the Robert Frost poem. Home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. <laughs> and Ian looks at Jamie and goes, I can see why you can't live without her. She must be a rare comfort to you. <laughs> like, if you have to go there, they have to take you in, and that's how you know you're home. <laughs> but it's just a matter of perception, I guess, is what all of this is about. It's not necessarily a set place. It, home is where you make it to be. And I think that is what we see in Roger and Bree's storyline. At this point in their story, they've been back for a while. Mandy's already had her heart surgery. Everything's fine with that. And they've decided to go to Scotland for a visit. They're really just kind of adrift. Neither one of them knows what they want to do with their lives. And they go to Lollybrock just for some sort of solace and to feel close to Jamie and Claire. And what they end up finding is their new home. And it's a place where they both have a connection in their soul. Brianna feels like she belongs at Lollybrock. It's her family's heritage and legacy. It's almost her birthright in a way. She feels very close to her family there. And I loved that 
parallel that it drew whenever it showed Roger and Bree sitting on the steps in front of Lollybrock looking out the dooryard. It so reminded me of in Dragonfly and Amber when Claire sits on the stairs and sees Jamie's ghost standing in the archway there. That's kind of what Brie is hoping for. She's hoping to see Jamie and Claire there. Roger kind of points it out in jest, but not really. Like he is desperate to see and hear them again and to touch them and hug them. And that's grief for you. It's unpredictable and it comes in waves. And I feel like we see a good representation of grief and guilt in this episode. It's not rational. You know what? Roger and Bree's grief drove them to buy a money pit of a castle that I feel like the renovations are never going to be complete on, but they did it and they sunk all their money into it because it's their home. It was just really cool to kind of see how that is the tie that binds this episode. All right. So let's talk about the Frenchman's gold. And this topic has me of two minds. I get really worked up when discussing this with people because from the book reader perspective, I understand why it's important. From the show watcher perspective, I feel like they went without it for so long that it no longer had any value within the plot. And I hate to say that, but somebody mentioned that this felt like one series of retrofits after another. And it's really, really true, honestly. This episode was so full of, oh, we've got to fix that, and oh, we've got to fix this, and well, this didn't happen in the show, but it happened in the book, so in order to make this make sense in the show, we have to retrofit it. This episode was so full of that that honestly, it was kind of a bit distracting for me, and it's one of the major reasons that I have an issue with 703, and it didn't rank any higher for me than it did in the season. The Frenchman's Gold is one prime example of that. I mean, to be honest, we just don't care about it like we should. The bugs don't matter. The gold doesn't matter. And we were supposed to care about both. We were supposed to be invested in both storylines by this point so that the things that happen in this episode would mean more. For those of you that may not be familiar with the myth or legend of the Frenchman's gold, King Louis of France supposedly sent gold to support the Jacobite cause in Scotland. That gold never made it into the hands of Bonnie Prince Charlie and his supporters. This is a legitimate thing that happened in history. You can Google it and there are people, there are treasure hunters out there still searching for it to this day. No one knows where it went. And Diana likes to use those points in history, those mysteries, to fill her own story and she can create what happened to XYZ within those confines. And she did that with the Frenchman's Gold. It did exist, but nobody knows where it ended up. So let's have it end up in America and have Jamie and Claire and Roger and Brie have a complete plot meltdown (laughs) over this gold. In the story... Dougal McKenzie, Archbug, and Hector Cameron all went to meet this gold as it came ashore. And then it was split up between the Grants, the Camerons, and the McKenzies to help the Jacobite cause. But by the time this gold made it ashore, it was basically too late to do any good. Culloden was imminent. So... Nobody knows what Dougal did with his. The Grants used it for the betterment of the clan to kind of help them through the aftermath of Culloden and the 45. And 
Apparently, Hector Cameron never gave his to anybody. He just ran away with it. We saw Hector Cameron have the gold. That's what caused his daughter Morna's death that Jocasta told Myrta about in season five. So we have heard a little bit about the gold and why it's important to the story. But when Archbug found out that Hector took the gold for himself and built River Run with it, obviously that didn't sit well with him. Now, where I start to take issue with it is, what the heck did Archbug think he was doing by taking it back from Hector? And that's kind of what Jamie says. A man who takes from a thief is made a thief himself. And I really do agree with Jamie on that. And while I think it's a great sentiment to have this great dialogue between these characters, first off, I don't really care. And second off... Where is it going? It never amounts to anything because all that I gather from this is that Arch wanted to take it for himself. And where did he think he was wanting to spend it? How did that make him any better than Hector Cameron? I just don't understand. (laughs) One question that I've heard a lot of people raise is, well, if Jamie keeps the gold or takes it back from Arch, doesn't he make himself a thief? I don't really consider Jamie a thief for taking the money back from Arch, and I don't think Jamie does either, because from where we're standing, that money belongs to his Aunt Jocasta. It's his blood's money, and so when he takes it back, he's just taking back what's his. I don't know. It's very complicated. And like I said, I'm not a huge fan of the story, but the whole idea of loyalties... I think is raised throughout the past few seasons, really, really the entire show. It's the question of the show, the theme of the series, where do your loyalties lie? For Jamie, I think this conversation with Arch does raise some questions for him about where his loyalties lie. What is his next move? And this is when I think he decides we need to go to Scotland. I need to keep the promises that I kept because my loyalties lie with my family and with my wife. And when Arch says, I think now that my loyalties lie with my wife. And I would think that Jamie would understand that more than anything. And maybe that's why he gave Arch the gold and told him to go because he recognized that Arch has a wife and... While Jamie might not agree with his decisions, Arch was doing what he thought was right. That doesn't necessarily mean that Jamie wants him around, but I don't think it's something that Jamie feels he can fault him for either. But all of this results in the biggest plot point for Ian up until this point in the season, which is the death of Merdina Bug. And I noticed something very clever with the way that this scene was blocked. When Jamie is talking with Arch and they're in the burnt out house set and they're kind of down where the foundation was originally, the floorboards are all burnt out and all you see are the brick pillars that were holding up the floor that were like kind of the subfloor. And so now that the floor is gone, they're standing on the ground with all of these brick pillars around them and they're technically standing underneath where the house was to begin with. That's why when you look at where Ian is, he's kind of up on the porch where the floor originally was for the house. And so when you're looking in space at where Arch is standing and where Ian is standing, and then you fast forward to the next scene when quote unquote Arch is digging up the gold and Jamie and Ian are watching him, they're standing in the exact same places when Ian shoots Arch. 
What I thought was fascinating about the way this blocking is, is that it's identical in space. And in the first scene, after Arch walks off, Jamie looks up at Ian standing up on the porch and kind of just nods at him. Ian is always watching after Jamie. Always. He's his shadow. And I think that is something that I've particularly noticed across the end of season six and pretty much all of season seven. Ian seems to never be far away from Jamie. I think his daddy would be proud of that, if I'm being honest, because that was old Ian's job. And now it's young Ian's job. And I love that. But anyway, back to the point. So Ian's kind of there in shadow, just observing. And Jamie looks up at him and nods like, we're going to do something about this. And then whenever Ian shoots Merdina later, I mean, they're standing in the exact same place. They're drawing that parallel to how similar this situation looks, not only for Ian, but for the viewer, so that we're almost just as shocked as Ian and Jamie are when they roll over the body and it's Merdina and not Arch. Because she's dressed exactly like Arch was and she's standing in the exact same place that Arch was. They're all standing in space similar to each other. It was very cool how they creatively drew that image so that we can relate to what Ian saw as well, if that makes sense. Ian naturally feels a lot of guilt over what he's done. From a rational point of view, you can say he was protecting Jamie. That's what Claire tells him. That's really the only thing that he has to kind of cling to his sanity, if that makes sense. And I think he really wishes that that was enough, but he doesn't feel like that's enough of an excuse for what happened because he said, you know, Uncle Jamie was just grazed. He wasn't injured. I didn't have to shoot her. And I kind of disagree because who's to say that she wouldn't have shot again and really hurt Jamie? You know, I think Ian did the right thing. But again, grief isn't rational. Guilt isn't rational. And he's looking for a way to make it all okay, make it better, undo it, so to speak. Of course, he's never going to find that because death has a finality to it. And Ian is a relatively violent man. He definitely gets that from Jamie, and you could say that he's a man of his time. But I feel like it's different when he thought he was shooting Arch versus when he found out that he actually killed Merdina. You can look at it as sort of a mirror for Ian and Arch because Arch also holds himself accountable for what happened to Merdina. He blames himself, but I think his guilt becomes too much for him. And that's why he resorts to the retribution that he places on Ian of when you have something worth taking, you'll see me again. He clings to the idea of revenge for what was done to his wife versus accepting the blame onto himself and realizing that if he hadn't allowed Merdina or asked her whatever the situation was, if he hadn't put her in the situation where she was dressed like him and went to dig up the gold, she wouldn't have died. And so rather than internalize that guilt and that blame, he turns it outward and decides to hold Ian accountable and take something valuable from Ian. Now, what that does in the long run, I think, is just as psychological as it is a physical threat. There's the very real possibility that 
Ian could fall in love and get married and have kids. And then Arch could come along and take those things from him, kill his wife or his children out of revenge for what Ian did to Merdina. But it's also almost as bad for Ian to contemplate that happening. Like every time Ian finds a smidgen of happiness, he has that fear inside that Arch is going to come along and take it from him. And so it's like he's constantly watching over his shoulder. That has to be absolutely awful to have to worry constantly that your loved ones are going to be taken from you. You can see him even filtering it over into Arch wanting to kill Jamie and Claire because he knows that Ian loves them as a mother and a father. I feel like in the books, this was a much more credible threat. Not that I don't completely understand it and not that I don't think that Hugh Ross did a fantastic job with the funeral scene and the threat with Ian, but I also don't think it holds as much weight as it did in the books. I don't buy it as much because he's not this spry individual, this violent man that has a very threatening presence in the books. He was Jamie's right-hand man. He was the factor of the estate. He was very capable of all the things that he's threatening to do to Ian and Ian's loved ones in the books. I don't know if I buy that physical capability in the show, but I guess we'll see how this all transpires. I'm sure They're going to play it out right like it was in the books because that's kind of the story of this season. They're being very faithful to the books, and I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, I don't know that it was the best casting choice. Let's put it that way. Mrs. Bug's funeral was very interesting in the choices that were made creatively. Leading up to the funeral, we get the scene where Claire is cleaning Mrs. Bug's body and Jamie comes up into the loft and says he can't find Arch. There's quite a bit of back and forth here. And then Jamie looks at Merdina and says, Merdina, wife of Archibald, you will be missed. And then it cuts to Claire and she says, Amen, puts the shroud over her face and says, I hate that she's going to our grave when things weren't right between us. Now, I don't know that this fully makes sense, if I'm being honest. And I get the feeling this scene was originally longer than it was in the episode because it just doesn't make sense. What were Claire and Mrs. Bug not on the right footing about? There wasn't really any back and forth between them, no scene where... Mrs. Bug was hateful or judgmental or says anything to Claire to make us indicate that things were not good between them. That line didn't make sense to me. So I really think that there is probably more to that scene and maybe we'll get it as an extended scene when we get the DVDs, which it wouldn't surprise me because this episode was actually relatively long. It was right at an hour. You know, Stars likes them to keep things right at an hour unless they have specific permission. So it would not surprise me in the least to find out that that was originally more of a scene. So let's talk about a really, really fantastic scene. And I say that with a glowing review with one exception. (laughs) I'm talking about the scene between Ian and Jamie where they discuss William's existence. Now, if you take this scene at face value without trying to analyze it or think about it too much and you just suspend disbelief and you take the scene for what it is, it's absolutely frigging phenomenal. 
John Bell and Sam Hewen did a fantastic job with the looks that they share. They really took their time with this scene and let it breathe, which I was so appreciative of. And Ian flat out tells Jamie that he knows that William is Jamie's son and has known that Jamie is William's father for a long time, apparently, and just didn't say anything. And so I got to thinking about that. I wonder if it's not really something that Ian put together until he came back from the Mohawk and really started to think about it and then realized that that was the secret that Jamie was hiding when he saw all of these paintings that Jamie has of William around the house and really kind of just got the gears moving because I just don't know that Ian was mature enough at the point that William first appeared on the ridge to kind of put two and two together, if that makes sense. Furthermore, I don't necessarily know that Ian would have waited as long as he did to say something to Jamie if he had known for the space of six or seven years that William was Jamie's son. Like, why now? if you've known all this time. So I'm thinking it was a relatively recent thing that Ian put two and two together. The one thing that bugged me about this scene was that you have to suspend disbelief to buy it. In season four, when William and John were on the ridge, Jamie literally explains why Ian is not on the ridge. And we don't see Ian the entire episode because he's with his Cherokee friends. So now you've got to retrofit it and make it seem like Ian came back to the ridge before John and William left the ridge and they saw each other and it had to be enough of a connection that Ian could put two and two together that Jamie was William's father. There's just so much about that that doesn't make sense when you think about it too much. Like I tend to do. So like I said, it's a fantastic scene and it's one of my favorite scenes in the episode, but you have to take your critical eye out of it and just appreciate it for what it is because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. So anyway, I felt like this was the scene where we really started to be able to appreciate how much of a man Ian has become. At the end of this episode, you talk about how Jamie and Claire are going to take Ian back to Lollybrock, and Lord knows what they'll make of each other, Ian and Lollybrock. He's a man now. He was a boy when he left, and he's lived a lot of life between now and then. I feel like this scene was very important for us to understand everything that Ian has been through and that he gets Jamie's dilemma. And Jamie can trust him. He will never say a word to anybody about it. When Ian says, you must be so proud, Jamie has a host of emotions that go over his face. First is fear that somebody that's not supposed to know that he's William's father knows. And the second is confusion. How did you know? Because I didn't tell you and I know John didn't tell you and I doubt Claire told you. So who told you? And third is this flicker of pride as Ian describes what he sees in William. He says, from what I remember, he was a stubborn lad. Wasn't afraid to speak his mind either. Reminded me of my mother and you. He's a Fraser, sure enough. There's just something in William that screams Jamie Fraser. Even though Charles and Sam look very different, they don't look as similar as Jamie and William do in the books. But there was a shot 
like a side-by-side comparison that stars put together of William and Jamie in that scene in 708. And oh my God, they do. They do look similar. Like they could pull off father and son. And I think when Ian tells Jamie, I won't tell a soul, like I've got your back. All Ian wants to know is, does William know? And when Jamie tells Ian he can never know, that's that. There's just so much that's unspoken between Jamie and Ian, but there's so much trust there. And the subtext of their conversation, the facial expressions, there's so much maturity in Ian in that moment that I think Jamie is even surprised in a way. Like, he knows Ian and he knows he can trust him, but there's just something about the way he just takes this in his stride. And honestly, I think... There's a little bit of embarrassment for Ian that he bothered to say something after all of this time, but also he wants Jamie to know that you may have lost a lot here, but you didn't lose me and you can trust me to keep your secrets and be your right hand man. Another really cool thing that I noticed about this episode was the title card. So the title card is actually Jamie's dream or a snippet of his dream that he tells Claire about later. And it really was so cute. It's one of those things where as a book reader, you can envision the scene and the dialogue that went down with it and really appreciate it. As a show watcher, I think it's cool. Show watchers, I'm sure, drew the parallel, but it's something that I really appreciated getting that extra little oomph behind it because they knew that they couldn't actually film the scene and take the time to show us Jamie's dream, but they could put that as the title card. And so I was appreciative of the effort there nonetheless. What I really liked was Jamie telling Claire about his dream because in the last episode when Jamie was telling Claire that He'd seen her before in her own time and that he knew it was her time because of the electric lights. I think Claire was a bit skeptical of that, despite the fact that Jamie has told her about other dreams that he's had, particularly about Brianna and her birthmark, the dream that he told her about in season four. There's still a certain amount of doubt for Claire. And, you know, that's an odd thing to be doubtful about, considering the fact that this woman is living in the 18th century, despite being born in 1918. (laughs) Um, You'd think that she wouldn't be doubtful about anything, but it's really hard to have anything else left to doubt when Jamie verbatim describes a telephone, something that there's no way he could have ever seen in a million years. And he describes it down to the cord that's like curled up like a piglet's tail. She just knows. And then whenever he says that Roger called the dark haired woman Fiona. She just kind of loses it. That really proves what Jamie is seeing is real. I think she lives for those dreams because that's her glimpse of her family in the 20th century. And honestly, I think she's probably a little jealous, if I'm being honest. Whenever I read the scene where Jimmy goes up to the phone and says, I want to call Granda. Oh, oh, man, that was so hard to read because... It happened very quickly after Roger and Bree went back. It's like adding insult to injury or like kicking you while you're down just to have one of those scenes. But sort of satisfying as well to know that like Jamie and Claire are still getting little tastes of their family, even though they're separated by 200 years. I have one last thing that I want to talk about for today, and it is the music choices 
and the creative choices for this episode as far as content. First, I want to talk about Ave Maria in the funeral scene because first off, Kat knocked it out of the park. They included part of her rendition in the trailer. So we knew it was coming, had a feeling it was for Mrs. Bug's funeral based off of the context. But it was really gorgeous when you pair it with the orchestral arrangement around it. She's very talented. I know that she was kind of iffy about doing it, but I'm so glad she did. The nerd in me got a little curious because I'm not a religious person by default. And of course, I've heard Ave Maria before, but it's in Latin. So what the heck is it saying? And then it really made sense to me whenever I started doing the research that Ave Maria is actually a rendition. I think it was originally put together by Schubert, if I'm remembering correctly. And it is the song version, the musical rendition of the Catholic prayer, Hail Mary. If you've read the books, you're probably familiar with the Hail Mary prayer, but I'll read it for you just so you know in context what this is about. And I think it also kind of explains the choice for why they put this song in the funeral. The words are, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. Amen. We're talking about pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. There are a lot of sinners in this ballpark, okay? Especially in this scene, we're talking about Ian, who's got grief over killing Merdina. Jamie has a lot of grief over Merdina's death because it's like he said in that scene with Claire where she's cleaning up Merdina's body and he says, what did it matter? Why didn't I just let them take it? I'll be honest, I would have the exact same question. I would feel that guilt just like Jamie does because it didn't matter. They were leaving the ridge. They didn't need the gold. And it ended up causing a lot of pain and suffering that was really unnecessary. So Jamie has a valid point. You've also got Arch, who is a thief, and his actions are the whole reason that this snowball started rolling down the hill. Obviously, there's a lot of sinners in the hour of death. Lots of people in need of praying for. So I felt like Ave Maria was a very apropos song choice for this scene. And then, of course, we've got paired with that the choice of Death Be Not Proud, which is a John Donne poem. And what they included in the show was actually a very abridged version of that poem. I'll read you what's included in the show. And it says, Death Be Not Proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. Poor death, one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. It's talking about the resurrection in the second coming and how we're only parted temporarily and then we will wake to be with each other again in heaven. So that's kind of what that poem is about. And I felt like it was also appropriate for a funeral, but also when you're talking about death, mm, you're not all you cracked up to be. Don't be so proud because Jamie and Claire were supposed to die in this house fire and they escaped death. So they kind of took death's pride down a notch, so to speak. So I thought that it was appropriate as a title for the episode, but also appropriate for 
the funeral and everything that ensues with Arch's threat against Ian and whatnot. Having spent a good chunk of time looking for appropriate chapter titles for this book I'm writing right now, I think I have a pretty good idea of how much thought went into the choices for Ave Maria and Death Be Not Proud being included in this episode. Tyler English Beckwith wrote this episode. It was their first episode of Outlander, and I think that they did a pretty decent job. You can definitely see the creative license that they've taken with it. Speaking of creative license, let's talk a little bit about how freaking amazing Bear McCreary is. In the podcast for 703, the official podcast, Matt Roberts took a little bit of time to delve into some of the other things that take place behind the scenes, like color timing and when the score is written and the editing process, etc., etc., which I actually found very interesting. But something that I thought was cool was that they don't give the episode to bear to write music for until it's time locked, which just means that they've basically edited it down as far as it's going to go when they have a set amount of time for that episode. And then they give it to him. They put previous clips of music that have a similar sound or a similar theme or vibe to what they want in that scene. And then if they want it changed, They'll tell him, oh, well, here's the theme we want to use, but we want to make it a little more sad or something like that. After having heard that, I watched this episode with a new appreciation, I felt like, for the music. At least I'm assuming that's what it was because there was so much in the music that stuck out to me this episode, like more than normal. So I'm assuming it was the podcast. There were three choices in particular that stood out to me that I wanted to mention. The first was when Jamie and Claire are having their discussion about going back to Scotland. After that decision has been made and Claire agrees with Jamie that they need to go back to Scotland, you hear the Skyboat song just very faintly in the background, but it's got a new instrumentation to it. It's got like a new world fiddle type vibe to it, which I'm actually really a fan of. And I'm also like, okay, why can't we get that? in a main credits theme song. So if anybody hasn't thought of that yet, I'm just putting it out there. The second was in the let me be enough scene where Jamie is praying, which first off that on its own, that scene rips my heart out because I felt like they've made a concerted effort to show Jamie's religious side this season. And I'm so appreciative of it because it's a really huge part of who his character is. But showing Jamie's spirituality really helps us understand what makes him tick. And it also makes it that much more heartbreaking when we see him praying to God for the strength to continue, for him to be enough for Claire despite everything that they've lost. It just breaks my heart. Anyway, so when we listen to that scene and... We're listening to the music underneath it. It's the Jamie and Claire theme song. And in the OG version of the Jamie and Claire theme song, because it's had a lot of renditions over the course of seven seasons, it's normally kind of a woodwind E theme. And sometimes you get some strings in it or whatnot. But this is almost like a slightly different key violin music. And it's very long and drawn out and very mournful. 
it just fascinates me how, you know, there's a quote that I like to use and it says, music is how emotion sounds. In instances like this where you're watching a character pour out his heart to his God asking for the strength to continue and the strength to be enough for his wife as they go on this journey. It's just like a cry for help, that long, drawn-out note. It's gorgeous. I love it. And it really stood out to me. And the third one, and I really like this one, when Jamie and Claire are laying in bed and Jamie is telling Claire about his dream. And he talks about Roger. And once again, you hear the Jamie and Claire theme. But I swear to you, when I first heard this, I thought it was the Roger and Brie theme. And I was like, oh, that's clever because they're talking about Roger and Brie. And I love picking out those instances like the last episode where Frank's theme played when Brie was talking to John about Frank. Same earlier in this episode when Ian and Jamie were talking about William and they played William's theme. So I thought, yeah, they're playing Roger and Bree's theme. That makes sense because they're talking about them in the future and they want us to draw that connection. But what was so clever about it is as I listened to make sure that I was hearing what I was hearing, it wasn't Roger and Bree's theme at all. It was Jamie and Claire's theme with that iconic guitar that Roger and Bree's theme is so often played in. It's Jamie and Claire's theme, but with the instrumentation that we relate to Roger and Brie, and I thought that was extremely clever. So with all of that being said, I think that is all that I have for 703, Death Be Not Proud. Performance of the episode was John Bell this week because I felt like between the scene between Jamie and Ian where they're talking about William, the scene where Ian is talking to Claire about his guilt over killing Mrs. Bug, the scene between Arch and Ian where Arch says, when you have something worth taking, you'll see me again. I just felt like we were seeing almost a new version of Ian with open eyes this week. Like, oh, he's a man. And that is really how I felt watching that scene between Sam and John where they were talking about William. There was a maturity in John's expression that really kind of made you feel like he was beyond his years because I think Ian is 26 or thereabout in this scene. He's, you know, as I've said, he's lived life. And I felt like John did a really good job of portraying that adult version of Ian this episode. There were a lot of emotional scenes and I feel like he knocked them all out of the park. So yes, performance of the episode goes to John Bell. And then quote of the episode is a fun one. When Roger says, you and your mother, the 18th century is lucky to have survived you. I absolutely loved the vibe between Roger and Bree this episode. They're back in the 20th century, back in comfortable clothes. I'm sure it's great running water, central air and heating, but there's a comfort that Roger and Brie take in each other. They're a lot more casual with each other this season, more comfortable with each other. And I think that you can really see it in these few scenes that they got, especially when they're reading the letters. And I'm always happy to get a few giggles when you have a relatively serious episode, you know, so that's why I picked it. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up my thoughts. But as always, I wanted to take a moment to ask you what you thought of 703. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. 
Jen O'Neill says, This episode felt like a bunch of retrofit scenes strung together. We barely saw the bugs on screen, so I think the show watchers were most likely wondering, who were they? Also, the scene with Jamie and Ian and the portrait of William. I understand why it needed to be there, but everyone knows that in the show, Ian wasn't there when Lord John and William visited the ridge. I was definitely disappointed we didn't get the full dialogue in the knife scene, but I get why they left it out. It was a good episode, but probably my least favorite of season seven. Performance of the episode goes to Sam Hewen for the face he makes when he talks about little Rodney's parents. It was hilarious. (laughs) Oh my god. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, it was hilarious. It was like, oh, he's just like his parents. And then he gets totally weirded out and like grossed out by the fact that they have a threesome. (laughs) He's like, anyway, we should probably go assassinate. (laughs) I pretty much agree with you on everything else. It was a bunch of retrofits. Like I said, you've got to suspend disbelief on a bunch of stuff this episode and you kind of have to just take it at face value. You know, the show watchers that I've talked to, they don't really know what they're missing. So they don't really have a problem with this episode. And I guess ignorance is bliss, right? (laughs) That's kind of where I'm at on it, honestly. Casey Filson says, I have a love slash relationship with this episode. If you haven't read the books, the whole storyline can be slash is a bit of a slap in the face. As a book reader, I wasn't wholly impressed with how they handled the storyline. After the discussion Archbug had with Jamie, I think the episode flowed a bit better. I do like the content so much still feels out of place. That being said, I loved the back and forth between the Mac and Fraser stories and thought those were done excellently. I loved Roger's reaction to the burning of the house, blaming Bree and saying, that's what happens when you stick two women from the 20th century into the 18th century. Ian's heartbreak over Mrs. Bug was bittersweet, but also out of place. If a person has read the book, they'll know the importance of these characters and the relationships they had at the house. I loved all the Jamie and Claire scenes. Jamie is so worried that Claire won't want him anymore, and I just want to reach through the screen, shake him, and tell him she loves you for you, you idiot. (laughs) My favorite line of the episode was when they're working with the gold and Jamie tells Ian, Well, she keeps taking me in, so she must be home. Love it. And the knife scene. I was waiting for a particular line about how Jamie knew the size of Claire's hand slash grip, and we didn't get that. The Spaniard's Cave was really cool and very well done. The only thing off about it was Grandad is expecting a three to four year old to A, keep a secret, and B, remember what the heck he's talking about. Yet another reason they should have aged Jemmy sooner. It's a great line, incredibly sentimental, and relationship building, but not well thought out. For me, Roger and Bree deciding to buy Lollybrock seems to be a full circle situation, and it's beautiful. Leaving the ridge is really, really sad, and I'm glad we got to see Claire's moment with Adzo before they left. She's so strong, and he's her outlet just to let it go, which she needs. And she tells him, of course, he's good enough, which he needs to hear. The actor who plays Arch really got his creep factor on, and wow, that was an outstanding performance. There was a lot to unpack in that one, Casey. Okay, so a couple of things I saw in here that I wanted to make sure to mention. I also loved the back and forth of the Mac and Fraser stories. I think that the letters really help 
having Jamie and Claire read their letters to kind of transition between the scenes was a perfect way to make that work. And I was really hoping when we were waiting for this season to come out that that was going to be a choice that they made because... In season four, they didn't have much to help them transition between the stories and tie them all together. So it was really difficult to embrace Roger and Bree. But I feel like they're doing a really good job this season so far. Also, another thing that also bothered me about this episode, which you mentioned, was the fact that, yeah, Jamie was just expecting three to four-year-old Jimmy to know where the Spaniard's cave was and be able to take Roger and Bree there. There's no way he's going to remember it. You're right. And it just, it bugs the crap out of me. Like, I understand that they wanted to do as few as actors as possible playing Jimmy. And so that's probably why they waited until this three-year jump between 703 and 704 to do the recasting. But yeah, it still bugs me. It's still not realistic, in my opinion. Okay. Laura Hillman Turner says... Watch for all the blue utilized this season in the costumes and even the Max car. It's the blue from Jamie's kilt. It's everywhere. I first noticed it in the funeral procession, Jamie, Claire, and Lizzie, but is woven throughout season seven. I really love how much book content is being utilized. They've done a good job of weaving in the ends they left dangling in previous seasons. With Ian never meeting William in the show like he did in the books, they did a good job of explaining how they met off screen. Ian, he reminded me of my mother. The letterbox was one of my favorite storylines from the book. I wish that instead of Roger pulling out a knife to open the box, that he would have pulled out a predetermined key that Jamie had given him that he had been carrying around since coming back through the stones. Roger's brown coat when he's at Lollybrock is spot on, very similar to a coat my dad had in the mid-70s, early 80s. I like this episode. It's an opportunity for things to simmer a bit while continuing to move the story along. Keep looking for the blue. It's everywhere this season. Okay, well, I will certainly look for the blue. Your comment was actually one of the few that I got a chance to read before this episode. And so I did look for it a little bit throughout the episode, and I did notice it in a couple of places. So that's kind of cool that they're keeping that family connection there throughout the two time periods, because they also do have different palettes, which is kind of something that Matt Roberts mentioned as well. And yeah, I one thing that I thought about with Ian saying that William reminds Ian of his mother was this episode really starts to bring Jenny back into the conversation, which considering they're going back to Scotland, I think it gives us an opportunity to kind of adjust to the idea of having Jenny in our lives again <laughs> before we get to Scotland. They're they're kind of having us dip our toes in the water before they just throw us in, if that makes sense. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps this episode of the Sassanac Files. One thing that did happen on Thursday, August 30th, is we got a highlights of the season seven soundtrack dropped on iTunes. You can purchase it. It's the Sinead O'Connor theme song. There's a piece of music from Gregor Lebroy and a eight minute piece that I kind of think, and I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I think it weaves all of the new-ish music from season seven into one highlights piece. So I'm very excited to listen to it. I can't wait. And you can go and purchase that now. Also on September 24th, if you're looking for something to do this Droughtlander, we are covering our next edition of Droughtlander Book Club in my private group, 
TSF of Sassanax. That will be at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, and we will be covering The Three Brooches by Catherine Lowry Logan. It is the sixth book in the Celtic Brooch series, a time travel romance saga about a lovely extended family. So definitely has its parallels with Outlander, and I think you guys would enjoy it. So if you need a new piece to read, head on out and check out the Celtic Brooch books. Alrighty, well, I would like to extend a special thanks to all of my patrons that have made this episode happen, particularly Liz Vidler and Catherine Lowry Logan, who are major supporters of mine. So I want to get them a huge patron shout out this week. And make sure to join me next week for 704, A Most Uncomfortable Woman. And with all of that, you guys have a fantastic week, and I'll chat at you later. Bye!